One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello, you've downloaded a podcast of NewsHour Extra with me, Johnny Diamond, from right in the heart of London. And it's a frothing mix of food and drink and entertainment. There must be a dozen theatres within spitting distance. There are another dozen or so cinemas. There must be 50 or 60 different movies showing at any one time, at any one night. And there's music spilling out of shops and clubs and bars. But to find the dominant form of global entertainment, the undisputed leader with an audience of 2.2 billion and global revenues of $108 billion, you've got to go gaming. So I've walked a couple of minutes north in Soho and I'm at Game, which is a, well, it's a gaming shop and inside uh, is the tip of the iceberg. There's games and there's headsets, there's a virtual reality headset, there's consoles, there's more games, there's headphones, there's more games, there's more games and there's more games. With so many eyeballs and so much money involved, there are plenty of people itching to have a go at gaming. This month, the World Health Organization swung in, declaring that gaming might be addictive, like drink and drugs and gambling, all of which, of course, are regulated in some way around the world. Rubbish, say the sceptics. We will discuss and we'll talk game design, the impact of platform the depths of addiction, despair and the thrill of the game. I'm going to run back to the BBC studios to get this thing started. And our panel is Bernie Good, cyber psychologist and consultant to the gaming industry. Dr Daria Kuss, psychologist at the International Gaming Research Unit at Nottingham Trent University. Steve Pope, psychotherapist treating gaming addiction, joining us from Blackburn in the north of England. And Dr Andrew Shabilsky psychologist based at the Oxford Internet Institute at Oxford University. Now, it's probably worth mentioning that not everyone on the panel today actually believes in gaming addiction. I've talked to the World Health Organization about why they think it is an addiction, and we'll listen to that in a moment. But let me ask you all first, briefly, because we will come back to this, do you agree with the World Health Organization and think that there is such a thing as gaming addiction? And if not, why not? Bernie, let me start with you. Frankly, you can get addicted to anything. So in terms of could there be a possibility for people to be addicted to gaming? Absolutely. Dr. Shabelsky in Oxford? Pretty similar take, mainly that like many activities, gaming can be one that's dysregulated, like sleeping or eating uh, or playing golf. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a pathology in its own right. And so my main concern has to do with the fact that the evidence base um, really isn't there for such a bold move on the part of the WHO. Daria Kuss. As a member of the expert panel who's recently met in Istanbul at the World Health Organization expert panel on gaming addiction, I very strongly agree with including gaming disorder in the diagnostic manual. And I think it's the good step in the right direction. Steve Pope, you deal with people presumably you describe as addicts. You must believe in addiction. Yep, I see it day in, day out. And whilst I'm always grateful for statistics and information in the written form, you know, I see it day in day out gaming addiction is a silent epidemic and it's through programs like this that we'll actually start saving lives 
Well, let's hear now from the World Health Organization. I've been speaking with one of the men behind the proposal to add gaming disorder to its official list of diseases. Dr Vladimir Pozniak is with the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse at the World Health Organization in Geneva. I asked him why have they said that gaming addiction should be classed as a disease? The main purpose of the classification is to facilitate professional help in cases when uh, particular conditions can be recognized as a disorder. So that's why we have sufficient evidence after reviewing all the information available and after a series of consultations of our experts to come to a conclusion that this is a time to include gaming disorder into the draft 11th revision of international classification of diseases. We fully acknowledge that there are not a lot of data in comparison with some other conditions which are firmly established in the international classification of diseases. But at the same time, this is also a purpose of the classification to stimulate international dialogue, research, and we hope that uh, this move of the World Health Organization will facilitate all these processes. Dr. Shabilsky in Oxford, you put your name to a short article questioning the World Health Organization's reclassification. Do your doubts remain? And in particular in that article, they said that this could have a serious downside in stigmatising games players. Is that still a concern for you? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. There are many things that stimulate research in the world, and that doesn't mean we need to create a disorder for each of them. Um, I joined more than 30 expert colleagues who have been studying games in many capacities, and we've reviewed the evidence. And for the other candidate disorders that really haven't been included, kind of through this consultation process that very few of us were consulted on, it's really a, a step too far. Steve Pope, I presume you disagree, and you, you think that this is exactly the right step. Exactly. The, the We don't get well from labels, so, you know, I, I'm interested in the academic arguments, and, you know, obviously some people feel that they've, they've not been listened to and opinions haven't been taken, but as I say, you know, I'm a frontline psychotherapist. I, I work with people that are seriously ill through gaming addiction, and we help them get well. So I haven't got time to sit around and uh, listen to the academic arguments about whether it's an illness or not when day in, day out, I'm seeing people literally dying from it. We need to recognise it, and we can't wait around for people to you know, win or lose the argument about whether it's an illness or not. It's there. And, and I've said before, and, and I'll say it again, if anybody wants to come and spend a few days with me, you, you won't argue after a few days of seeing the way it affects children young adults and actually we we, we had a 73 year old last week who, who turned himself in with a problem over call of duty so it's there it's it's there to be dealt with you just used the phrase literally dying you, yes you you mean that yeah of course it is it, addiction is a terminal illness and the, the best we can ever do is manage it and the problem we've got now is we live in an age where the computer system and the computer the laptop the ipad the iphone is interwoven into the very culture of our society so we have to teach people to manage it it's rather like treating eating disorders you know you can't stop people eating you can't stop people using laptops game stations because they're there they're part of the way we live now and so we have to educate them and at some stage when we have to take the message to children in the schools and we have to explain to them you know the pros and cons of long periods of activity on these bits of equipment as we educated them over food you know 25 years ago eating disorder wasn't a problem was it 40 years ago it was cool to smoke cigarettes and now lo and behold it's it's very dangerous and you know I, i've 
been banging my drum, as it were, since 2010 about the problems of game station addiction. And, you know, I've been threatened by gamers. I've been threatened by companies, told to keep my mouth shut. And, you know, now I feel vindicated because people are starting to recognise the size of the problem. OK, let's pause for a moment and let's hear from someone who had a brutal problem with gaming and who was helped by Steve Pope, our addiction psychotherapist. Jack Perry is 23 now, but when he was younger, was a promising young footballer and you became obsessed with digital gaming. Yeah, I was a promising young footballer, yeah. And with the football, I was missing training and stuff. How did you get into the games and at what point did it become such a big issue? My parents were out of the house a lot and they bought me a, an Xbox to play while they were out as I was getting babysitted. They were giving me that to play and that's when it started because I was just playing that all the time and uh, that's when the addiction started. Really. Some, some of our listeners will have had addictions, will have been gripped by things in the same way that you are. Many will not. Can you describe for us what it was like when you were fully in the grips of it? It wasn't good. I was up all night falling asleep as I was playing games. In my dreams, I had dreams of playing the game. I was uh, skipping meals, I was urinating to bottles. and uh, well, So that you could keep playing the game? Yeah, so yeah. I didn't have to move away from the console. I was missing family events. I missed some fa- vital information about my family that I only found out after Steve helped me. And presumably the, the football, the actual real-life football, went by the by. I mean, that yeah, stopped, I, yeah, I completely left that, yeah, to, to play games. Were there any particular games did you have different reactions to different kinds of games because we talk about games as if they're all one thing which they're certainly not it was mainly um call of duty and fifa that mainly i played but call of duty was one of the biggest thrills that i got and you would play it for how long about two to three days i could go just sit in there have the occasional 20 minute break or so and then get straight back on how did you get yourself out of the grips of it I got introduced to Steve. Steve consumed me into different times. said, play uh, this amount, have a rest. I'd speak to Steve. He'd settle my mind a bit. And then I'd move away from there. He got me out to do stuff with my family. got me out to meet old friends that I'd not associate with because of my gaming addiction. You call it an addiction. You are convinced it was an addiction. Yeah, I've been there. I strongly agree with that. When you got out of it, and you're out of it now and you look back on it, does it seem like the same person or does it seem like a a very different Jack? It seems very different. Uh, I think I lost a big part of my life. And how about game playing now? Do you dare? I don't really play. I don't really um, want to, really. It doesn't appeal to me now. Jack, thanks for your time very much. I really appreciate you coming on. Steve, you've been treating Jack. Do you see many people like him? Hundreds. 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 It's the silent epidemic. We keep playing it down because it's good and we've got to keep this clean image up of games are fun, but we keep playing it down. It's killing people and it's there. You know, Jack was close to death on several occasions. On one occasion, we pulled him back in a window when I'd been called round to the house because he got himself to such a state of frenzy he was going to jump out of a window. He lost a career. And you find a lot with sportsmen that they are obsessive in their nature. That's why they're good sportsmen. And, you know, this problem we're talking about is not just peculiar to young children who are playing it. I've worked with a lot of sportsmen who are playing these games nearly up to the time of kickoff and then don't perform. And they're being paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a week. But they're getting the same hit out of playing the game as, without being too controversial, you get out of a line of cocaine. You know, it's there. They play the game, play the game, play the game. 
then they've got to go out and play a game of football mentally that the chemical levels are all destroyed worn out gone and they, and they can't perform the games it's there and it has to be recognized and, it, and it's about bringing back a, a balance in the way they live it's non-selective and it affects people only with the addictive personality you know that's the thing i know a lot of parents may be listening to this and thinking oh my lord take the ipad off them take the game station off them but it's the addictive personality and the addictive personality will addict to things it finds pleasurable it's an easy high that's the problem we've got now you don't need to go out find your drug dealer you don't need to go and pay money immediately to the drug dealer your parents kindly give you the xbox the playstation for christmas you sit there the parents get peace and quiet the kid gets more and more into the habit of the easy high it's there you, okay. you're playing it in seconds that's the problem we've got it happens within seconds you get in the high when i was younger you know the, it would be a bottle of cider in the park that was <laughs> was uh, you know the big adventure but these days the kids it's it's in the room they're already isolated they speak to their friends through playing especially FIFA and games like that they all join in on the game at the same time they spend hour after hour you know playing the games it, it just doesn't affect the playing of the game in the bedroom but it affects their schoolwork it affects their social okay. life and and it affects their their, their physical health okay like, but, but but let me bring in Bernie Good you're a consultant to the industry you you see positives out of games and gaming don't you absolutely and you know that's upheld in the literature and the research from a psychological perspective i just would like to just caveat and just quickly say that this addiction that and i and i i sympathize with people like jack and it's great that steve's doing the work he's doing is really likely and who have said this themselves to only affect a very small proportion of game these are very small numbers absolutely a very small proportion even if they are large numbers because of the number of players absolutely and i think that's critical to keep you know at the forefront of our mind and in terms of the positive aspects that can come out of gaming i'm sure andrew uh, will reinforce some of the things i'm about to say because he's done the research around this it can give and address uh, people's needs psychological needs around well-being and what it is that makes people happy so for example as you move through a game you are progressing and you're you know getting achievements and you're grinding through a game you're taking out a boss in a game for example that really can give you a great sense of competence, of, of mastering something. And that is a need that we have as human beings. And if we are not socialising and we're not, you know, we're not outside the house and we're not getting those needs met in other environments, gaming can address those needs very, very well. Can I, can I just say that the need to master is the very problem because to, to, to a lot of personalities, the need to master the problem you never get to master the problem, do you? Because the problem's never ending because you put different levels on. There's add-ons. And I can be guilty of that as well. I think I'll just go on Facebook for five minutes. I can be there 50 minutes later. And it's the same thing that becomes a timeless journey of I must get to the next level. And if you've got the obsessive competitive nature, which I think the speaker before me is talking about developing, the the, the problem is it, it knows no bounds. And it, that there has to be regulation. And I think there has to be regulation either from your loved ones or from the family on, on how long you're on it. And we, I, will, we, I, will I, come on, we will come on to regulation. Steve, let me stop you there for the moment. Daria, I want to bring you in because I know this is something you've worked on, this question of a relationship between personality types and gaming. Is there one? Um, uh, and are there, is there a kind of person who is much more likely to get drawn in? 
I have done gaming addiction research for the last 10 years or so with different populations. I've been talking to patients who've been treated for their gaming addiction. I've talked to their psychotherapists. I've talked to a number of researchers and scholars around the world about these kinds of issues. And in my own research at inter- the International Gaming Research Unit at Nottingham Trent University, I have indeed showed that there are a number of personality traits as well as a particular profile of a person that would appear to be at higher risk to develop gaming addiction. And these individuals very often seem to be people who are increasingly socially anxious, for example, they may be more socially withdrawn, they might be lonely, they might seek some sort of a pleasure or social contacts in the gaming world. And as has been noted by a number of other colleagues today, those kinds of games, those online games, particularly massively multiplayer online role-playing games, are able to to allow the individual to meet these kinds of needs. And if those games allow to meet those kinds of needs, then of course the individual is going to continue playing the game as it is going to give him a lot of rewards. And these kinds of rewards are often rewards they don't receive in real life or in the offline life. It's much easier to get those rewards as well as a reputation achievement in the game than it is in real life. However, I also have to add that on the one hand, yes, gaming addiction appears to be a problem for a very small minority of excessive users. But on the other hand, there is a considerable body of evidence that would suggest that gaming indeed is something that is good, that is healthy, beneficial, very enjoyable to the individual and may indeed also increase a number of cognitive skills. So I think from a scientific perspective, it's very important to bear in mind both uh, parts of the coin. Andy Shabelsky, there's a cause and effect issue here, isn't there, about uh, whether it is a certain kind of person that is drawn to a game or that games in the end, if people become obsessed with them, uh, make a, a person in, uh, in a certain kind of way, a depression or a loner or whatever you want to say. And you, you think that the cause and effect issue is being muddied. Yeah, right. So uh, to build on both of uh, Daria's and Bernie's points, what really happens is that when people don't have their need satisfaction met in everyday life, when they don't feel competent, when they don't feel autonomous, uh, when they don't feel meaningfully uh, kind of emotionally related to other people, that makes them vulnerable for a kind of a wide range of different types of behavioral dysregulation. So it's not necessarily gaming. It can be anything. It can be playing golf or t- taking selfies or something like that. Um, and kind of the key thing that happens is when this happens, people don't actually enjoy the activity that they're doing. So they might play more hours of a video game play, um, but they're not as happy as somebody who's playing kind of more normally. They kind of have more ambivalent feelings. They have uh, positive feelings, but they also have a lot of negative and and conflicted feelings. And so while it's indeed true that need satisfaction in a game can, can draw people in and is part of their appeal, that really falls away, that kind of aspect of the game really falls away uh, when someone gets dysregulated around it. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm really all for studying this, and, and I also have for about a decade kind of studied these kinds of dynamics over time in gamers, um, and, and it's, it's really something we should be focusing on. But the, the real question is, in my mind, is, um, you know, when, when all this research is, nearly all this research is correlational, and, and most of it is exploratory research, um, should we really be kind of taking the World Health Organization uh, to task for singling out this one kind of potential behavior dysregulation um, and ignoring so many others or or more general phenomenon. I noticed there you used the word normally, as in there's normal games, I don't know what they'd be, football or throwing balls at windows or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, and then I guess there's gaming. You don't see gaming as normal games. No, I actually see it as entirely normal. Right, um, forgive me. I, 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 uh, if I misspoke. No, the, you know, the, there's an idea that you know, philosophers call it digital dualism. 
um, that in some way... I knew we'd get there in the end. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, but uh, you baited me. But but the basic idea is that some people kind of take for granted that what happens in in meat space is is in some way intrinsically superior um, to what happens digitally. And and really, that's a that's a fundamentally untested position. It's something that we can have opinions on, um, but it's it's really not borne out. And if you look at people who say have um, serious disabilities, uh, gamers who kind of have inner ear problems, or uh, they would suffer stigma in day to day life if they were out on the street, really games kind of offer and people with social anxiety, it, it offers a really broad uh, slice of the population an opportunity to to kind of engage in a way that they might not be able to with um, you know traditional football or fishing or something that we might now consider wholesome. Steve Pope, up in Blackburn, do you agree with that? Um, uh, the, the whole the whole principle of the game, yeah, the, 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 there are good sides to it. Uh, they, it does help. It does um, give some people a sense of achievement. But, you see, one thing we see right across the board is that the, the, the kids are playing games of violence. Violence becomes a thought pattern that becomes a belief pattern, and the next step is a reality pattern. Uh, and I... Maybe I'm going to be controversial. I think there's a, there's a big link between the games the kids play and what's happening on the streets in this country. And you know, I don't think there's. I don't. I think we're going to be very, very wary of the word normality and uh, the 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 use of it because there's there's so many different aspects to get to, to gaming. And as I say, you, you said we'll talk about it later. But the regulation of it and and and, and looking at the dynamics of it, of course, are an interesting study, but. It's not just, and once they get involved in the highs of the game station, then of course the next moves are into the pornography and the gambling. All right, all right. Let me, let me, let me. I've got, I've got Bernie Good jumping up and down in the studio, <laughs> metaphorically of here. Course, you know. uh, Bernie, Bernie, you want to pick up? <laughs> yeah, um, just really off the back of what Steve was saying about this idea that, uh, you know, violent playing a violent video game means that you're then going, going to go outside of a virtual world and you know and be violent, yeah, and actually. And well, actually, Steve, the research doesn't necessarily uphold that. Um, one of the key problems we have as social scientists, as psychologists, studying the field of cyber psychology is it's so new. So we need more longitudinal studies and we need more studies in you know various different cultural contexts. But this idea... How, how, do we, how do we kill people these days in a lot of wars? Do we do it by drone? You tell me the difference between a drone and playing it on a game PlayStation. Well, the, 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 the links are there. Andy, Andy, you come in. Andy. Yeah, I just want, I want to push in. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely true that there's a correlation between violent video game play and real-world aggression. Um, the problem is that it's a negative one. Um, every year that video games have gotten more violent in the UK and in the world in general, uh, youth violence has gone down. It's nearly year on year. I'll tell you what, um, tell that to the people of London because I'll tell you now. All right, all right, let Andy speak. Let no, Andy no, no, speak. no, I just want to be very clear. So, you know, we, 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 there are some pretty clever studies that have been done here that take things out of the lab. Um, and we actually find that on, on weekends when new violent video games are released, um, fewer people are arrested and picked up on street corners. Because um, of playing the games. Yes, they're inside instead of holding up a liquor shop. OK, OK, OK. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have to take a short break now. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service. This week, looking at gaming and its discontents. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. If you subscribe, you'll never miss an edition. And there are also 
many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. My current favourite is The Assassination, the brilliantly told behind-the-scenes story of the killing of Pakistan's Benazir Bhutto. Few journalists were closer to that story than the BBC's Owen Bennett-Jones. A lifetime's work has gone into this wonderfully told tale. Check it out wherever fine podcasts are to be found. And do please let us know what you think of this NewsHour Extra podcast or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our new email address, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk or tweet at bbcnhextra. But now let's get back to this edition of NewsHour Extra with me, Johnny Diamond, where we're looking at gaming with an expert panel, Bernie Good, Dr Daria Kuss, Steve Pope, and Dr. Andrew Shabilsky. Let's get a view now from the gaming industry. Joe Twist is the CEO of UK, UK Interactive Entertainment, the only trade body for the UK's game and interactive entertainment industry. What does she make of the World Health Organization move? Joe, welcome. Do you think that gaming addiction is a problem? I think the issue that we have is that the research and the evidence is inconclusive. There's been a real lack of transparency about this entire process. There's a huge body of evidence to say the contrary. And I think that games are enjoyed, well, we know that games are enjoyed healthily and sensibly and played by billions of people all over the world every day. And the industry itself really takes its responsibility to players and making sure that they play safely and sensibly and very seriously. Games are presumably designed to draw people in and keep people in. I mean, this is like Facebook, like other... Like any other entertainment media. World, ...like entertainment. The difference, I suppose, is that many games, especially the online games don't end. A football game ends after 90 minutes. These games just don't end. I don't think it's uh, it's useful to make such generalisations about games. Games okay. come in so many different formats yeah. and so many different genres, uh, so many different ways to play, so many different stories, themes. You know, again, it is important that people understand that they should be taking regular breaks. There are technical measures people can take, particularly if you have children at home. You can set the time limits on uh, consoles. And it really is about a common sense approach to any kind of media habit, uh, whether that be watching Netflix uh, or watching box sets or playing games. So it's not about whether it ends or not. I mean, that's a, I don't think that's a useful framework to look at it. I think it's just that these are huge, globally important entertainment products that are made by highly skilled developers and creatives. We're a really important part of the creative industry's story globally. And of course, they're going to be designed in a way that is compelling and entertaining and many, many games, in fact, also sort of now have reached a level of maturity where, in fact, they're helping people with mental health issues. They're actually helping to tackle difficult topics or storylines, almost like a documentary would. I don't think anyone would question the creativity of games designers, the brilliance of modern games. They are astonishing things to watch and astonishing things to play. There is a question, I think, in some people's minds about the open-ended nature of the game combined with the easy accessibility through especially mobile phones now and that that leads people simply to stay on and stay on and stay on in a way that is always going to be unhealthy for them. 
Again, it's like any other kind of hobby or thing that we enjoy, and it is about having a measured approach. I mean, the industry is a shared responsibility in terms of education and measures that we And do you take. do that? We does are, the industry yeah, it does we are at the education and research? Absolutely. We're at the, well, we're at the forefront of uh, really pushing the responsible games messages, especially to parents and carers. We run uh, informational websites that talk about age ratings and guide parents and carers through that process and help to understand that actually, you know, there are a number of measures that you can take you have to pay attention to the age ratings. Like any mature medium, we do have titles that aren't suitable for children to play. But then we have thousands and millions of different kinds of games that are indeed suitable. I mean, I know, having gone into game shops with my own teenage children, the first thing they reach for is the game which they are not meant to be watching. And, Mm. you know, even the toughest parents sometimes melt. It's a very, very difficult balance for parents to get. It's a difficult balance for users to get as well. It is a balance, but it's... Again, it's part of responsible parenting. And, you know, we are here to support parents. We can't teach parents how to parent, but we can do what we do in order to really promote the safe and sensible messages and using the technology and the parental controls that are available across all the devices. But I think it's important there is no replacement for parents and carers to be taking an interest and an active, playing an active part in what their children or uh, young people are indeed playing and enjoying. When you hear about players spending four, six, ten hours continually playing a game. Does some small part of you go, ooh, that's not right? I think in any way, you know, if I'm sitting on the sofa watching television for 10 hours straight and not getting up and not taking a break, you know, again, it is this matter of balance. You know, there are some really different kinds of games. Not all games are those kinds of games. You know, some of the... hugely popular ones do follow a certain pattern, don't they? You've got shoot-em-ups, you've got fantasy role-playing games. Uh, Not not all of them are the sort of so-called healthier, more educational... Well, those are the ones that we hear about. And certainly they're the big sellers. They're the ones with the big advertising budgets. And we should be very, very proud of them, just as we are with, you know, Bond franchises, for instance. But there there is such a huge diversity of different types of games and genres. And I think... I think it's important that uh, we make sure that we are promoting those kind of family-friendly games, those games that are really sort of, you know, all games, I believe, and we believe as an industry, have some kind of educational aspect. And, you know, they really do build up skills in terms of cognitive skills, hand-eye coordination, and being able to understand different kinds of issues like mental health or helping to really impact real-world science by generating real data, for instance, that helps in scientific research around dementia. So there's lots of different kinds of games. And again, you know, I think it's important to understand that when it comes to measures such as the age ratings, which really are important to take seriously, we seem to sort of lump all games in one box and assume that all games are violent and they're not. And in fact, year on year, it's far less than 10% of games that are rated age 18 and above. So the majority of games that are available are really fun, fulfilling and fantastic products. Steve Pope up in Blackburn. Fun, fulfilling and fantastic products. What do you make of that? Well, it's a nice sell. I feel, you know, as I listen to it, it's a very persuasive argument and I take it on board that there are uses for it, but it's the compulsive nature of the game that's the problem and it's the lengths the kids will go to to get the game. They'll steal from the parents. It's the hours they spend on it. It's the social alienation. It's all well and good. The game industry is saying, yes, we're leading the way on telling people to be careful about it, but that's what they do with gambling. That's what 
what they do with alcohol, they do with cigarettes, they put labels on it. Did it really stop things? No, because it's the, once the addiction's kicked in, we've got a massive problem. So if we're actually going to do anything, let's start opening up some clinics, let's start up some education, let, let, let the game industry go into schools and say, yeah, this is the good side of it, but this is the side you've got to be, you know, let's let them fund that. This is the good side, this is the bad side, because it's no good saying, yes, we're, we're warning people, because how many times are we warned about the effects of drink? Well, we still might, well, I don't drink anymore, and that might tell you something, but we're, we're <laughs> let's gone, not go there now. Yeah, yeah, let's not go on that one now, but how many times are we warned? Don't drink, it could be bad for your health. Ten pints later, you, you, you might agree with them, but the warnings are no good, because they're going to out, we've got to educate the kids and we've got to go and so if the game industry want to do something let's all go into schools together and you know a united front singing from the same hymn ship and put the perils of it there because we play down the number of people it's affecting and i'm telling you now it is the biggest form of addiction facing british society you can combine all the rest cocaine heroin alcohol put them all together because i'm telling you now this is the biggest problem we've got because there's such easy access to it and we're finding addicts where we didn't even know we had addicts because you you said it all before it's the easy access parents are the enablers we buy the ipads we buy the xboxes we we, we enjoy the peace and quiet of the kid being upstairs and that's how it starts not in every case it can be fun but so can a few drinks be fun joe twist joe twist i think you're you're being accused politely hang on andy I'll, i will bring you in so just i think you're being accused of dissembling or perhaps painting a rather glowing picture of the games industry the games industry is something that we should be proud of globally and particularly proud of in the it can uk still have its problems though can't it and it As may have anything more to do can have issues and again it is about that education about how to play safely would you go into schools and, and talk to talk to kids um, about playing safely? i think our starting point is that there is no evidence uh, and conclusive research and evidence that is saying that games and addiction is actually a disorder. That is our oh. fundamental starting point. Lordy, and I think, lordy. you know, if you look at the existing literature, it copy and paste from gambling and from substance abuse, which is completely different to games. Andy, Andy, in Oxford, I had to cut you off there. Sorry. No, that, that's OK. So I just want to kind of, um, to, to the point that was raised about kind of it being an epidemic. So I have spent quite a bit of time studying this and using kind of nationally representative samples. We've looked at how something like games might stack up with something like gambling disorder. Um, and we find that, you know, among young adults and adults across the lifespan here and in the United States, the rates of, you know, potential gaming disorder using some of these tentative definitions and checklists that are borrowed from substance abuse models, that the rates are, are less than half of what they might be for gambling. Um, so despite the idea that they're always available and they're always on, something like that, um, we're really not finding evidence that it's an epidemic you know, even if it is a problem, even if you accept a, a substance use model, we're looking at numbers, we're looking at a third of 1% as the potential area here. So this is about a third of what we see for gambling. Bernie Good in our studio here. Bernie, you, you design these games, or you rather you help advise the industry on the design of the games. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, you're, you're bursting to speak, yeah. I can see. <laughs> Tell me. I've worked with many of the world's largest game designers and developers and they are interested in the ethics. They are interested in ethically what their approach should be to the design and development of a game. And we are seeing games that are being made that are, you know, in composing 
sort of emotional triggers for people, but in a positive way. So there's lots of games out there, this idea of can we teach empathy, you know, can we teach emotional intelligence? We see more and more games being developed where we have these kind of things inside the game because it's what the player wants. We know that players have a desire for continuation to play because they're interested in the storyline, the characters, backstory, etc. So there's lots of benefits for pro-social gaming and largely my experience dealing with design and developers when I'm consulting with them. It isn't about how can I quickly trick someone into making a micro transaction with me to spend some money in the game. It is more about how they can make the experience more enjoyable for the player. It's very easy for the gaming industry to use the analytics and to know what points where to engage someone from a, if they want to make money out of someone. That's not the sort of work that I do and it's not the work that they want. These game design developers want to be working with people like me for they want to get to a point where there is you know an emotional reaction in the player that's a positive emotional reaction in the player and that the player is getting some of these needs met some of these psychological needs around well-being and what it is that motivates us the reality of the work that I do and the work that people like Joe does it's not this idea of we just want to you know these game design developers want to get people locked in a room get them to keep buying within the game or get them to keep buying the next it's more than that that video gaming is a cultural phenomenal experience and people get great amounts of pleasure from it and there's all sorts of opportunities for encouraging pro-social behavior from gaming. Daria let me ask you about design and platform the kinds of games that are being produced and the different places and ways that they can be played does that change the lure of games in particular these massive multiplayer online games and does it make it more difficult for players to stop in certain circumstances? Mm. I think this is a very important question this is also a question that we've addressed with our research at Nottingham Trent University so for example the very recent study that has now come out from our work uh, has actually showed that gaming on smartphones doesn't appear to be addictive from what we have seen however when you look at platforms that are uh, a bit more immersive such as computers, regular computers, then of course you'll be able to play different types of games in comparison to the kinds of games you can play when using your smartphones or when using your uh, social media games, the games that are integrated within social networking sites such as Facebook, for example. We have also showed that certain types of games such as mobile games or massively multiplayer online role-playing games appear to be more addictive than other types of games and we also know that online games appear to be more addictive than offline games. However, this is not to say that offline games are not potentially addictive. And I see that some people are not necessarily happy with what I'm saying here. (laughs) But from from the the empirical evidence that we have gathered with our scientific studies around the world, and this is a considerable amount of evidence, which is now leading the World Health Organization, as well as the American Psychiatric Association to including gaming disorder or gaming addiction in the diagnostic manuals. And this is based on the evidence that we have collected. The evidence is there. It's not perfect, I agree, but it is there. Okay, I want to talk if I can, about cure or about helping people, if I can. And Asia has been ahead of the curve for some time on this because it had such penetration so early from gamers. Uh, in particular, for instance, in South Korea, there is a, a ban on youngsters playing games between uh, midnight and six in the morning. There are other things going on. Daria, I think you've, you've looked into some of, of what Asia has done. 
Yes, so what we know is that gaming disorder, gaming addiction or internet addiction really has already been considered as a public health concern in 2008. So it's been uh, officially recognized. The situation in Southeast Asian countries is very different to the situation here in Western countries. And we had that conversation earlier as well. We really do have to bear in mind the social cultural context in which these kinds of games are being played. And the social cultural context of gaming in Southeast Asian countries is very different to the kind of context that we have here. And this would also mean that gaming might not yeah. be as popular or as prominent or potentially as excessively engaged What's in What's the difference here? in that context? Forgive me. What, when you say it's a very different context between here and Asia. Mm. Bernie? Over in South Korea in particular, people work very, very hard. In fact, I think 20% of the population out there work more than 50 hours a week. I think compared to, I think that's probably 12% UK. So they are real grafters out there. They work really, really hard and they play really, really hard. So it's this idea of a play culture in South Korea that's very, very different from here. On top of that, pro gaming is absolutely massive in South Korea, where tournaments are played on the television a little bit like dancing on ices over here. People get round telly and they watch it. And esports is phenomenally, massively successful out there as well. In fact, esport players are treated as if they are Olympians. And in fact, you know, a tournament, I think last year or the year before, some of the top players got married at one of the finals. So it's the different culture, their different approach to play. And um, you you don't, are you saying you don't think that regulation that might happen in South Korea would be applicable to a different gaming culture here in Europe? Absolutely not. Not based on the different cultural context we're in. And the Cinderella law that you talked about, this idea of having a curfew from a particular time till in the morning, I, you know, certainly don't agree with anything like that for the UK either. Andy, in Oxford, is there is there a, presumably there is a role for parents here who have been mentioned glancingly by some of our guests? Yeah, absolutely. But I just uh, I just want to dovetail on the, the, the treatment thing. So the really interesting thing about the Cinderella law was that uh, after it's been in place for about six years, scientists went back to test, you know, how effective it was. They wanted to save the sleep of teenagers so that they could study more. And they actually found that this giant law, which required signups and everything, saved South Korean youth on average one minute and 23 seconds of sleep. (laughs) Well, it's, it's always um, a nice slice. And, and something similar happened in China when they... It they really made... just didn't change anything, is what you're no, saying. No, they, they probably studied more or they did another activity that teenagers do. But the, the similar things happened in China when they had their cooling off law, where you get less experience points after three hours of play. Um, people just bought more accounts because they wanted to play as much as they uh, they did. And the really kind of tragic thing is that a, a lot of a lot of treatment in the East kind of follows a a boot camp rehabilitation model. So it's a, a, a drip and a drab of um, people kind of reading our articles in the West where we have to justify how great our studies are, even though many of them aren't very great. And then they put it into practice. So we have electric shock treatment. We have boot camp culture. Mm. Uh, we have parents paying thousands and thousands of won a month. And there are deaths. Do, do, the, do the people handing out treatment and do the regulators, do they understand gaming? No. 
And, and, and here's the thing. Um, you know, we are talking, we've touched on this. We're, we're really talking about games right here, almost as if, like, we're talking about them like they're one thing. Like, yeah. We're, yeah. We, we, we might as well be debating the effects of food on people. Yeah. We're not really talking about calories or proteins or fats or anything like that. And that really kind of speaks to kind of the, the, the child level of the research right now. You know, by just taking substance-based models, we risk pathologizing normal behavior. And we, we don't really know if this arises as a, as a symptom of something else, of some other regulatory problem or social failing. With booze, you've got alcohol. With drugs, you have opioids. Nobody's put forth a, a, a compelling, replicable, robust model of what the secret sauce is um, across all games, uh, let alone have defined video games. Do you think that exists, a secret sauce across games? No, no. Because, because games as a category is a bit silly. And that's what makes this, a, as a move from the WHO, kind of concerning to me as a relatively kind of conservative, by-the-numbers scientist, which is that we're going to have a new disease, a new disorder that doesn't have symptoms. And where do we, where, what other aspect of our lives would we accept a new, a, a new disease that has no fixed syndrome and no, no fixed uh, etiology or disease course? Daria, is this a disease? Yes, it is a disorder for a small minority of excessive gamers who cannot help themselves to actually stop the gaming, who are experiencing significant impairment and distress as a consequence of their gaming, who are sacrificing a number of other opportunities in their lives and other pastime activities, any kinds of recreational activities, social activities, etc., for the sake of gaming over an extended period of time. And the World Health Organization are proposing a number of criteria which need to be met over a particular point in time for a diagnosis to be possible and only as I say again I have to stress this a very small minority of the excessive egg gamers may be considered to indeed have problems as a consequence of their gaming and those are the kinds of gamers who can be classified and who may require treatment and the kinds of treatment approaches that we're using here in the UK and across western countries I'm now outlining in my new book that is coming out on internet and gaming addiction treatment and we have approaches that are significantly healthier and more applicable to the populations here and those are t tend to be based on cognitive behavioural therapy. As we come to the end of the programme, I want to look a, a little towards the future, if we can. And we, we mentioned it very briefly there, I think, when we talked about immersive gaming. And we talk about augmented reality and virtual reality. There are new forms of gaming coming out and have come out already that become more and more like reality. Is that going to be a problem is it going to be more problematic? Andy, let me ask you first. Uh, yeah, so kind of from the broad view, um, the, the answer is I don't know. And anyone who tells you, <laughs> and anyone who tells you they do know, they're trying to sell you something. We don't know if games are kind of the, the next nicotine or um, really kind of the next Dungeons and Dragons. We've had moral panics about rap music, role-playing games, jousting, radio serials. And, um, you know, I think maybe the only thing that's going to extinguish people ho-humming about online games is um, people reflecting on the good old days when, you know, before VR. <laughs> the good old days before virtual reality. Steve, what do you think about a next generation of games? Do you, do you, do you wait for another onslaught of patients? It's, it's already happening with the face mask, where it, the, the virtual reality effect of that is causing 
greater upset in the patient. You know, the, the ramifications of it, it. You know, I've put one of those masks on and the, my God, you know, there was some decapitated guy running at me. I, I flung the mask across the room, smashed it, had to pay for a new one for the client. You know, it was, uh, I just thought it was happening. And the game in itself isn't the problem. The station in itself isn't the problem. It's how people react to it. It's the problem. And the one thing I, you know, I've listened and in, to everything everybody said, and the one problem is, well, I agree with you, you can't marginalise the game station as being, it's the, it's the whole internet problem. The game station is part of the internet addiction. And and we look at figures for game station, we look should look at figures for the gambling and um, pornography, because the whole thing is instant access, instant hits to the young brain. And that's what we've got to change. And of course, is the intensity of the games. And no matter how you dress it up, it, it is still going to be a problem for the player. And the lady who says about the, the problems in South Korea not being problems, Problems here. No matter how we look externally, internally the human brain works in the same way. Whether we're in Korea, the United States of America, or whether we're in India, or whether we're in the UK, the brain works the same way. So what we're seeing as big problems in South Korea is happening here. But the lady says, well, they work very hard in South Korea. Well, I accept they do. But here we've got kids who've got more time on their hands to play the games, and the addiction starts to run right. right. Even well, more. I have I have the lady you've been referring to. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the last couple I, of minutes. I wasn't being disrespectful. No, don't worry at all. Bernie Good, <laughs> Good is here. No doubt we want to respond to some of those points, but I also want you to address okay. this idea, Bernie, of augmented reality and virtual reality being another step in gaming and a potentially bad step. OK, so I've been collecting the literature around the psychological research of playing games and the impact on human behaviour for 13 plus years. I would suggest to have one of the largest databases of the, of the literature on the globe. And the reality is we still do not know, as Andrew says, what we do know and what the literature does tell us is that people understand the difference between a virtual world and a real world. When virtual reality becomes, you know, in people's homes and we get to that point, unless we have all of the sensory input within a virtual reality environment and it becomes so real that it is just like real life, there may be a point where people will struggle to understand the difference between a virtual world and the real world. But actually, we're way far away from that. Just video and audio inputs aren't enough. You know, absolutely not. You know, Palmer Luckey, who invented VR headset, he really, you know, summed it up a couple of years ago when he said, till all of the sensory inputs is there, then you're not going to be in a real like-for-like real environment whatsoever. Daria, the future. Yes. Does it concern you or do you greet it with open arms when it comes to gaming? Personally, I would greet it with open arms. I'm a very strong proponent of technology use, which is why I've developed a new master's program in cyber psychology. However, we also do need to bear in mind that there are potential risks, there are potential dangers, and we as scientists, together with parents and teachers, need to take some responsibility in actually allowing young people to become aware of those potential risks, which is why we are currently at Nottingham University developing a program, a prevention program that is going to be rolling out in schools in the United Kingdom where we are going to be talking to these young people together with their teachers and together with their parents about technology use. This is the most important thing that we can all do is starting the dialogue, talking about it, using the technology together and being aware that actually use can be very beneficial and also bearing in mind that for some people it may be excessive and potentially lead to addiction-related symptoms. Well, let us hope we have started some of that dialogue on the programme today. That is 
is it for this week from NewsHour Extra. Thanks to our guests, Bernie Good, Dr Daria Kuss, Steve Pope and Dr Andrew Shabelsky. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other programme from the archive, you can listen back at bbcworldservice.com. And if you want to tell us what you think, email us on newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk or tweet us at bbcnhextra. That is it for this edition. From me and the team, that is NewsHour Extra. Thanks for listening.